hello and welcome to another uh, Coffee and Concepts. Uh, as usual, what I'll do is I'll talk for 15 or 20 minutes and then we'll, we'll open it up. This week in, or this month in honor of, uh, oh, sorry, I'm just gonna change the speaker view so as I'm recording this right. How, how do I do that? I am so bad with this. I'm sure it's fine. Um, <clears throat> okay, uh, yes. In honor of Atheism for Lent, which starts next week, I thought I would do, or on the 17th, I thought I would do a stroke theism as a concept. And this will not be new to many of you. Um, although the funny thing is, I don't know where that particular writing of atheism comes from. I don't think it's me, um, but I uh, did a quick uh, Google search and couldn't find it. I think I got it from Derrida, Jacques Derrida. But there's lots of different ways of writing this. Uh, some people write, you know, there's a stroke theism, which I used in How Not to Speak of God. There's, there's a way of maybe bracketing the A of theism. Uh, there's also different words like Richard Carney, an Irish philosopher, uses the term anatheism, which is doing something kind of similar. But this term a stroke theism is a way of attempting to capture the dialectic movement that exists between theism and atheism. And it's a term that attempts to uh, uh, see, show how they're linked and yet how they're distinct. Kind of just like love, actually, when Kate was mentioning the, the poetry group that's gonna be about love. Love is a type of living contradiction between respecting the otherness of the other and yet feeling that the other is part of you. Uh, it's also a dialectic between suffering and joy. Uh, you know, but, uh, but love is a, is a weird way of reconciling otherness without dissolving it. So A-stroke theism is a type of way of, of acknowledging that. Now, I'm going to give you my broad description of what I think is going on within that word. And uh, it's very closely connected to how atheism for Lent has become structured. So at the very beginning, atheism for Lent was really just a reading group. Uh, on the book Suspicion and Faith by the philosopher Merrill Westphal. And he looked at the work of Feuerbach, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche uh, as purifying readings, as kind of religious readings, critiquing a certain notion of God that has been critiqued within the religious traditions. And he did this as a Lenten reading. He suggested it as a type of Lenten experience. So we did it over Lent. And then over time, I've chopped and changed and played with different ways of formatting atheism for Lent. And I've come up with a certain structure that has been probably marked it for the last two years. And I'm gonna describe that. So we'll start with theism. So in dialectics, as many of you know, if you've been engaging with me on Patreon for a while, dialectics is a form of thinking in which there's a affirmation, then a negation comes out of that affirmation and then out of that negation comes another negation that seems to somehow capture what's gone before and bring it into a different space. And this kind of moves forward. So we'll start with theism, straight up religious theism, the belief that there is a supreme being out there in the world, controlling everything, source of everything. Uh, you could say that right from the beginning, there's obviously been critiques of this. And really, the deepest critiques come out of it, right? Critiques always come out of a tradition, right? There's different types of atheism. There's Jewish atheism, Christian atheism. You'll have like uh, uh, Hindu atheism. They have a different feeling because 
different um, negations have a, have a feel or a shape to them in relation to what they come out of. Hegel calls this determinate negation. Some of you I know are reading Hegel at the moment, you crazy people. And uh, uh, you'll find it, Hegel uses this term determinate negation, which means that the, the rejection or the lack or the contradiction has the shape of what it comes out of. So it's a weird thing. It's almost like, it's, but it's like architecture. Architecture is putting walls around empty space. <laughs> and depending on how you put the walls around the empty space, that space is felt differently. So you get a sense in which architecture is the manipulation of, of space. Same with um, sculptures. Whenever someone makes a sculpture, often sculptors are thinking about not just the material, but the bits between the material. They're thinking as much about the, uh, the gaps as they are about the thing itself. So there's theism. And when you go deeply into theism and into the views about God, the religious views about God, you start to find contradictions, right? You start to find things that don't kind of make sense. And it's not that you move away from, from it, it's you're moving deeper into it. And then you start to go, oh, hold on a second. Can God make a Dorito so hot that God can't eat it, right? You go, that's weird because God can create a Dorito at any temperature, but God can eat a Dorito at any temperature. Therefore, you know, I'm falling into a weird contradiction. Um, I think, by the way, it was Homer Simpson who came up with that one. The traditional philosophical one is, can God create a rock too heavy for God to lift? Um, but there's lots of these interesting contradictions. Somebody might say one of the earliest critiques actually is the notion that three statements, these three statements I'm about to give you cannot all be correct. God is all good. God is all powerful. There is unnecessary suffering in the world. Right. They can't all be true, right? Two of them can be true, right? God could be all powerful, but not all good. And there's unnecessary suffering. Or God could be all good, but not all powerful. And there's unnecessary suffering. Or God could be all good and all powerful. And there's no unnecessary suffering. But when you put them all together, they just don't fit. Right? So these are some of the earliest kind of critiques. But then this brings us into kind of atheism, a, a rejection of theism and atheism. So you go into that rejection. And then you've got an interesting next step, because then you have these thinkers and these uh, figures who, who are part of the apophatic tradition who say that, oh, yeah, well, actually, God is beyond our understanding. Yes, every time we create a concept of God, every time we try to solidify what that word means, we miss it. We fall short of it. Uh, Meister Eckhart's famous prayer, I pray God rid me of God, right? So the apophatic tradition comes along and says, of course, if God exists, God must be a beyond being. God must be greater than the mind can conceive. By definition, that's a logical definition of God for Anselm, right? If you use the word God, you mean something beyond understanding. Because if God is, under, is in your understanding, you can think of something greater, which is something beyond understanding. And God, by definition, is the greatest conceivable being. <laughs> and the greatest conceivable being is a being beyond conception. Right? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating argument. And if you're doing atheism for Lent, we'll actually confront it directly uh, in week uh, two or three, week three. So just to say it again, the word God, whether you believe in God or not, the word God describes the, the, um, the greatest 
conceivable being. That's how we use the word. And the greatest conceivable being is a being beyond conception. Therefore, when we use the word God, we are speaking of something that is beyond all conception. Therefore, the atheistic critiques are not a negation of theism. They're actually a purifying spiritual practice, right? You actually have to embrace atheism because atheism is what purifies theism to the point where for someone like Pseudo Dionysius, one of the earliest mystics, he, he talks about the, the way of affirmation, theism, the way of negation, which is uh, what's called, the, the, so the cataphatic is the way of affirmation, the apophatic, which is the way of negation, and then finally to the place of praise, uh, the, the way of eminence, I think he called it, uh, which is a theopoetics. You get to a point where your language becomes a hymn, right? Your words become poetry. Okay, so now you've got this, this position, right? So you have, the, you have theism, you have the rejection and atheism, and then you have the affirmation of atheism that's kind of a type of theism. But it doesn't stop there. So next, you have these, uh, in, within history this happens, you have these thinkers who are like, hold on a second, now God is so distant from the world. God is almost like a Cartesian spirit that's kind of like not in the world, um, kicks everything off, but it's not like interactive because God is always beyond, always outside. And so there's a critique of this saying that um, actually religion has always been very earthy about people's relationships, about how people structure society, organize themselves, pray and worship <clears throat> in acts of service. Um, but there's also then, of course, the, the historical critique of people like Feuerbach and Marx, who said, well, then, you know, people can have their God, the mystics can have their God, but you know what, the important thing is the earth, the material, the important thing is how people live, how people find meaning and, and joy and justice and freedom, emancipation within the world. So this critique of, of the mystical God occurred in a very strong way, just saying, well, yeah, have your mystical God, but hey, we're going to concentrate on the earth. So this is a type of negation of that. And then you have the, 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 uh, the negation of that negation. Someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer at the end of his life, or someone like Paul Tillich, who says that, that this very affirmation of the world, of the earth, itself speaks of something transcendental, something like to, to give yourself to the world, to give yourself to something beyond mere utilitarian value, to, get, to, to find something worth living and dying for in the world is itself a type of transcendental experience, uh, a, a kind of commitment to beauty, meaning and justice that is beyond the world. Because every time you say what justice is, you know, totalitarianism is around the corner, right? And so these, these philosophers said, but the commitment to justice is a commitment to something we cannot name that is within the world, right? So that's kind of like an affirmation now again. <laughs> and then you have from that, where do we go from there? Oh yeah, we go then some thinkers come in and go, yeah, there is a transcendental dimension to reality, but it's not substantive. Right? It's not something you can grasp like God, a substantive thing. It's a pure negation. It's a promise. Jacques Derrida talks about the promise of something to come. It's like um, when we talk about justice, 
we're talking about a future that we don't don't have that we have no conception of that doesn't actually exist and what we're drawn to is a type of negation at the heart of life not some sort of like a divine speaking and then <laughs> we have the affirmation of that negation of a sorts which is uh someone like you know when you look think of someone like shizek um and this is where i kind of plant parotheology to some extent not that everybody has to go with this exactly but is the idea that oh that lack is a religious affirmation that very lack is inscribed into the very images of christ on the cross the idea of christ crucified the idea of kenosis so this this weird thing of there's some sort of like insubstantial part of reality is very much in line with the the, the religious tradition so what I've tried to outline there is, is dialectics in action, affirmation, negation, negation of negation, which becomes an affirmation, negation, negation of negation, which becomes its own affirmation, negation, negation of negation. And the way I use a stroke theism, the way I mean that phrase um, is naming that process itself. Um, and one final thing I'll say before I then open it up as a couple more minutes. Uh, while you can put history to this, what I've just drawn there, you could say it's an historical thing. You could go right back, back to the early Greeks and see the early critiques of Christian or religion, sorry. Um, and then you can maybe you see the apophatic tradition at a time in history and maybe the third, fourth century. And then you can see the the critique of that in like the you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century. And then you get, so you can't put historical dates on some of this, but not really because they're all always going on. And this is for those of you who are reading Hegel, this is important because Hegel draws out a kind of historical development of consciousness, but it's, it's, it's historical and it's not right. Cause every part of history has, uh, if you're reading Hegel, it has the master slave dialectic, has the war of all against all, has all of these elements so while you, you, you can't really draw a neat line, however, this stuff does you know, draw itself out in history. So you can, to some extent, mark different thinkers who mark these different kind of positions, but always be wary of, of how kind of accurate that will be. Um, and of course, the question is, it always sounds like we're at the end of it, right? So it's like, okay, so are we now finally at the end of this dialectic journey? And um, you kind of go, well, of course not. Um, but there, there is a type of end that's not an end. And I would say the type of end of this is when you realize the structure itself, when you embrace the structure itself as eternal, and you can directly affirm the structure itself. And people can do that at any stage in history. But the, but the, the dialectic continues to move, continues to operate. But it does change somewhat. It does change whenever you fully embrace it. Um, there's a type of, uh, yeah, there's a, what, what Hegel calls an end of history. So, okay, there is my little discussion. I want to open it up to you. Have you got any questions or thoughts or comments? Far away. Are we just supposed to jump in and ask on the Zoom? Yeah. Just jump in, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
No, I had a question. We're trying to figure out in the chat too. So you're when you're drawing out the dialectic, use use the word cataphatic, and that's what you connect with, like affirmations. Apophatic would be like um, contemplative prayer, some kind of wordless mysticism, and that's where you're putting Eckhart. And then you said it was I think you said pseudo Dionysus. Then in your mind, the dialectic closed for him closed back with some kind of praise that came out of the combination of those two pieces. Is that in? Yeah, absolutely. And so in a way, that's why I was kind of saying, you know, you can't really draw a line in history because because in a way, all the greats like Meister Eckhart, Pseudonanesius, they did, I think, find a way of kind of articulating this A-stroke theism in their own culture, in their own language. And for Pseudonanesius, that way of eminence, that kind of theopoetics, I think was a way of, of, of getting to this embracing the negation of negation. Does that make sense? Or do you want to come back on that? No, it makes sense. I think it's, it's actually really helpful. And so, and so you're just, um, you're associating in a sense, atheistic critiques. And this is where I'm a little um, with the apophatic tradition. Is that what I'm hearing too today? Is that right? Um, in some, in some extent though, a lot of atheistic critiques are actually with words. So they're more cataphatic. What am I missing there? Oh yeah. So I would say that the first, the first bunch of um, uh, affirmation, negation, negation of negation is, so you've got the affirmation, kind of the standard religious notion of God. The negation is the atheism. And then the apophatic is the negation of negation. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say, I'd almost say the apophatic tradition basically affirms the atheistic critique and kind of brings it back into a type of theological gives it a theological richness and then just on that by the way the second the second kind of set of um affirmation negation 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 is i'm thinking primarily of people like Feuerbach, marx nietzsche their their atheism was not an attempt to kind of show the logical inconsistencies of theism so their atheism was more of a rejection of just the whole conversation itself um, the whole idea of, so you won't find, obviously, as you probably know, you're not going to find an argument against the existence of God and Nietzsche, nothing very much, because for him, it's a different type of atheism. And then that different type of atheism is then brought into people like Tillich and Bonhoeffer, who, again, type of, in a sense, negate that negation and bring it into the theological realm. Go for it. Uh, question, please. Yes. Um, could you say again where the kenosis, where the emptying, the self-emptying, which is what kenosis means, where does that come in? Is that in the first or the second negation? Where would the kenotic work into that? Yeah, no, that's very good. I mean, I, I would say that it's funny, like you could put the kenosis is almost, you could say, well, you know, I, I, I think where that term really gets its value is in the last set of negations that I mentioned, where um, you have people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who really, really emphasizes the self-emptying of God in the world. Now, from Luther, actually, so you could probably, you know, Luther is incredibly important in that, but Bonhoeffer, um, I think, is a really significant modern theologian where, where you really can think kenosis is taken seriously. You could say the apophatic tradition do a form of kenosis, but I don't think they do. And I think this is Derrida's critique is 
there's almost like a fullness to the apophatic tradition. Not every apophatic thinker, but when you read them, there's like a, an overabundance of fullness. But it's the contemporary theologians like Thomas Altizer, even Karl Barth uh, uh, and Bonhoeffer, who I think really give kenosis a richness. And then where I think it really takes off is I think and in very contemporary discussions. I think that kenosis is very central to to my work, I call it, I think I took this from Shizek, so, so I don't want to say I made it, but the idea of a double kenosis, where God empties God's self into the world, and then God experiences a type of loss within God. So there's the kenotic emptying of God, and then there's another kenosis, which is God experiencing an emptying within God's self. And I think that that notion is where the really exciting stuff is today. Does that make sense? Do you want to come back on that? or? Well, yes. I've... I've studied a lot of theology of Jürgen Moltmann, who ah, wrote a yes, book called yes. The Suffering God, and he talked of God on the cross, and that's where the kenosis came in. That's where God was separated from God, and that's where I got that, and it fits right into that second negativity that you're saying when you get past that, so that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, that's yeah, 100%, the more modern right? yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, Moltmann's a great example. Actually, I, I haven't read much Moltmann, but there was a book of his I read in The Crucified Christ when I was doing my PhD. And I, yeah, because he takes very seriously kenosis, which I think is, yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah. Also, if anybody wants to read out any questions in the comments as well, if it's, even if it's not your own question, far ahead. We were just saying in the chat that uh, we're going to have to find some kind of drawing or illustration for all of this because it is very difficult to follow. So, yes, yeah, we're going to try and uh, draw some things out and share them on Discord. So very good. I mean, actually, and, you know, a, a, a type of diagram that is useful is spirals. So, you know, we we're talking about spiral dynamics. This isn't quite spiral dynamics, but spiral is whenever people are trying to to, to put Hegel in the diagrammatic form, spirals are very useful because they're a kind of circular movement, but going deeper and deeper in, deeper and deeper in. So that's probably the type of, the type of uh, image that might be useful. Would you want it spiraling inwards or would you want it spiraling outwards? Is it kind of growing and consuming what's on the inside? Oh, that's interesting. I, I always think of it as going inwards because you're go, you're kind of you're going further and further into the contradiction. However, um, you know these are these are incomplete. So I have to think about that because yeah, it might be. I wonder if it's more useful. It's encompassing more and more and more. Okay, that's an interesting comment. Yeah. Um, usually it's the other way around. Like, but not because it's right. But the people I know who have used spirals, they often start on the outside and and move right. in. But um, but yeah, that's interesting. Peter. Hello, hello. On yeah. Hi, how's it going? Hi. <clears throat> um, I was just going to ask because you talk about Hegel obviously mentioning or referring to an end point in this dialectic, you know, the end of history or like the spirit or whatever. Obviously, you know, like Deleuze rejects that like and says that there is no end point. It's just constant dialectics, you could say, in a sense that this, I mean, what's your position on that? And 
obviously in Hegel, it's not it's not a necessity that actually we ever arrive at that point. It, I mean, you could just read Hegel that, that that point is somewhere in the future that's never reached. You know, it's just. But ne nevertheless, to Hegel's thought, it seems necessary to have the idea of the end of history, which is a transcendental notion. You know, whereas that's rejected by Deleuze or rejected by other post-structuralists, I suppose, really, that just reject that as necess necessary and actually that it's a detriment to our understanding or a detriment to the way that we act in the world because it gives us this idea of something else. And I think that's very important in relation to this atheism, theism kind of no uh, discussion, really, because it seems to imply that Hegel has a kind of that end of history becomes something akin to God, no? And, 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 and whereas an atheistic, uh, sort of an atheistic approach from a post-structuralist view implies that, you know, we have to accept that there is no end point. Yes. No, very well said. Very well said. Um, and this is, this is bringing up the interest. I think you were there. I think some of you will have been there whenever Jack was on, um, was on last week, uh, with the reading group. And, uh, He's an example of someone who, and if you heard me at the end, I was asking him about this. He literally, I was like, he thinks that he talks about a headless Hegel because he thinks that Hegel does try to wrap this up, <laughs> that there is an end point. The end of history is kind of like where God reconciles all things. Um, and that's in contrast to someone like McGowan, who reads Hegel as precisely not wrapping things up that there's this dialectic that moves and eventually we get to God who's all in all. Um, so there is a bit of an interesting thing about whether Hegel kind of like has this end point and this kind of God eventually kind of wraps it all up and everything's got a nice bow on it or whether this is a continuing process. Um, and to be honest, you know, I think that's just a really important comment to make to kind of hang in the air in some extent. Uh, I, I really like She's X reading and McGowan's reading of Hegel, but I don't necessarily think it's right. As in, I don't think it's the right reading of Hegel. But I think I think if Hegel didn't say it, then you know they're be This is a, this is almost reading Hegel better than Hegel read himself, which is always how philosophy advances. Is you kind of misread the greats in a productive way. So, um, I, I hopefully that makes sense to people. I know it makes sense to you. But yeah, th that's a good question. Is is, is Hegel just kind of like, this is a process that eventually ends with the end of history and with God and, and you know, we, we saw God realizes God's self within history, or is this process a type of ongoing movement that never ends? And what I'm saying, and this is where I tentatively land, and this is what I was trying to say there, is I tentatively land that you can read the end of history, not obviously as the end of this movement, but the end of history is when you realize that the movement itself is the eternal. So you do hit the eternal. The eternal is the dialectic itself. And that's, so that's a kind of, it's a non-ending ending of history. It's a, you kind of give yourself over to the dialectic. And, but you also realize it never ends. But you're no longer, basically you're no longer victim of it. You're no longer just caught along in the, in the, in the waves of it. You're now somehow kind of like embracing it. I mean, the, the, only, the, the only thing I wanted to kind of add was, I mean, which do you find, I mean, which view of things, whether it's implied or like explicit that that end point sort of exists and whether it's stated or not, which do you think is more empowering in terms of sort of approaching our lives, I suppose, in more concrete sense? Yeah, 
And do you think it's more? Do you think it's more empowering to have uh, an idea that there? I mean, basically, I mean, it's kind of just the transcendental versus imminent kind of debate, really. I suppose. And which do, which do you think is more empowering in terms of in terms of our action in our lives? You know? Yeah, and yeah, and that's and that's very key question for me as well as you. It's like the reason why we're doing this not in a university is because while we're interested in the ideas, we're also interested in their existential import, and. My feeling is what the healthiest, the, the, the reason why, what, what I think is healthiest is a type of realizing the contradictions and the dialectic that's ongoing within ourselves that we cannot overcome, that we never get to the end of, that we somehow flow with and make peace with. So yeah, and that's in a very basic sense, I think when we fool ourselves to thinking there's an end point to this process, we end up thinking we're at the end point and yeah, that's not healthy. Thanks for that, man. Thanks for bringing that up. Anyone else want to jump in? May I add just a comment related to uh, to the way in which you define God as the greatest conceivable being was beyond conception, and that made me think of a. It, it's in my sense a little bit nerdy, but that made me think of the definition of infinity, which has changed in time in a way that really interplays with the definition of God, and. Because infinity itself is, it is not a real number. So the way in which that's been defined, it really changed a lot in the way that now it's defined as the limit of a series of real numbers. And so that, that really, there's a lot of parallels with, with that definition of God, because you use what is, what is known, what is an element of a set in terms of a series to define something that does not belong to that set. And it's something that I think was, maybe defined around beginning of the 20th century. So it's something pretty recent, but the fact that I think that what is really interesting is that even if you take a finite set, so zero to one, you can map it into zero to infinite, which mm -hmm. is something that, and I don't know, that, that's a really interesting parallel because you say something finite as man can in a way understand the infinite. And the reason is that this set from zero to one, if you take, it is a set of like infinite uh, numbers because you can divide every, this set into, into infinitesimally small portions. And so I think that's, that, that really, and, and one interesting point is that that makes sense just as long as you include irrational numbers. And so that, that really plays a lot into the definition of God as you, uh, just to put that in, in, yeah. in, uh, in, in kind of terms yeah <laughs> yeah i love that absolutely i'm no mathematician but what who was the mathematician who, who thought of transfinite numbers it was uh Dedekin, maybe i don't remember i can't remember uh, but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but exactly what you're saying is that this funny these definitions are not just happening in a theological vacuum like these ideas are are being discovered elsewhere, like in mathematics. So yeah, thank you very much for that. Are you a mathematician? Or are you just interested in math? Or no, no I'm an engineer, but it, it's still yeah. kind of related to that. Yeah. Very good, thank you. I'm trying to create a diagram. Is it possible to share my screen? If I make you a host, it is. Let's see if I can do that without. Yeah, sure that uh, go to share screen and change the option to allow participants to share their screen too. Oh, brilliant. Well done. Well done, Kate. There you go. So, yeah, you should have the ability to uh, share your screen now. Okay. 
And I'm sure I'm getting this wrong. I'm 100% sure I'm getting this wrong. Well, if you created something in five minutes, it has to be wrong. because I, or, or you're the greatest genius who's ever lived. That would be very impressive. <laughs> but, okay, so can we see this? All right, so we started with theism, which makes a claim there is a God. And then it's responded to by atheism that says there is no God. Mm -hmm. And out of that dialogue comes apophaticism, which says there is a God, but we can't describe it. Mm -hmm. And then you're saying from that, reacting to that comes something that you said was maybe praise, which is that God is imminent. And that's where I'm getting lost. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is very good. Technically, the next one would be the materialist critique, which is this, this apophatic God is irrelevant to the material kind of concerns of the world. So it would be like whether God exists or not is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. the world. Very good. Yeah. Which is closely related to atheism. Yes. It, in fact, it's, it's a second form of atheism. The first form of atheism is a logical atheism. The second form is like a, um, a willed atheism or a, an atheism that doesn't reject God because God doesn't exist, but because God, the term has become meaningless if you know almost one the first one's something like god is inconsistent the second is god is meaningless okay so, mm, and so they, they're both line, maybe what's that i put a dotted line there maybe showing a connection i'm not sure if that would be accurate yeah you would accurate sense of the yeah, they're they're both the negations of the affirmation so theism and apophaticism they're both the affirmations the negations of them in this is atheism and materialism. And then material, the affirmation of materialism, the next one down is the existential theologians, the um, what we, religionless Christianity, you might wanna call it what Bonhoeffer calls it. Okay, so existentialism comes from the dialectic between apophaticism and materialism? Or it's the, it's the negation of the negation of materialism. So it's kind of takes, you see the way, in your diagram, atheism, the first atheism is then rendered kind of like, uh, it, if I use a term, so there's the affirmation theism, the negation atheism, then the apophatic is the negation of negation, which means it's atheism rendered kind of almost theological again. Then there's the rejection of that. And then the existential theologians are the ones who theologize the materialist critique. So yeah, so this is very good because you're seeing how each move is subsumed and, and developed and deepened. So what do we say that the existentialists say? Well, I would, I would use that term because not all the existentialists, some of them would reject. I would, I would call it either, and then somebody else might have a good word jump in. You know, you could call it the theological existentialists or you could call it the religionless Christianity. That's what Bonhoeffer calls it. They would say there can be religion without a God. Or no, God is the, God is the transcendental experience within the material world. Yeah. God. What about just neo-orthodox? And you get Tillich and. Uh, yeah. Neo-orthodox could work as well. Um, so yeah, neo. Does that cover that cover neo-orthodoxy? Kind of covers. Barton, all of the yeah, I yeah, 
I don't know the theological terms as well. You've, I don't know if you study theology, so I, I just don't know whether that's the, the correct. I know the term, but not precisely enough to know if it covers like Bonhoeffer as well as Tillich as well as Bart. But it might. It, it covers at least till Tillich. Then I guess everybody that comes after those guys gets get called radical theologians. They keep going down that track. But I mean, the problem is that called Barton, and he's closer to regular orthodoxy, I think, than Tillich or Bonhoeffer would be. But I think neo-orthodoxy is what they call most of those 20th century Germans, uh, even yeah. the existentialist ones. Well, yeah, that's probably out of all the terms at the moment, that's maybe the best one because there's definitely some wording we could change on this diagram. But the diagram itself is articulating exactly what we were we were talking about. And then, and then the negation of ex, of the theology of the neo orthodoxy is the um, uh, oh yeah is I, I you call it the post structuralist critique maybe you'd maybe want to call it that that's because I'm thinking pr primarily of someone like Derrida. Um, I'm gonna need a bigger box. What was that? Sorry. Uh, the box is too small uh -huh. for the bird. I'm making it bigger. There we go. We're going to need a bigger box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, structuralism yes responds to existentialism in that 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 saying that that the, the there is a the transcendental like the substantive sense so I'll say it like so someone like Paul Tillich says that every time you seek justice you it's because you're already attacked there's there's a grinding of justice there's a grinding of beauty and truth that you can never speak but you speak from so there's a substantive notion of a grind of being. In fact, that's what I would say. God is the grind of being probably in that box. Then the post-structuralists are, there, God is a grind, there is a grindlessness. The, the, la the gap that's within reality that you can't speak of is not substantive, it's grindless. It's a, it's a, it's a void, it's an abyss. Oh, so no, not God is the ground of being, but God is the gaps. God. God is in the abyss. Yes. God is the gaps in the ground of being. You know, technically, not quite, because that's going to be the next stage. I would say um, there just there there is a void within reality. Let's say it like that briefly. So you know, don't use the word God yet, because then we're going to use the God in the next box. Reality has a void. A void that calls. Let's say that. And anyone who's been doing the Caputo book will will know this language. I mean, Caputo is more theological than this. He's a theological post-structuralist, but you have this notion of a call, a type of void, a promise. So, yeah, that's good. So how is that not transcendental? So it is transcendental, but not substantive. So the transcendental is a type of um, gap. So in the, in, the, in the existentialist box, you would want to write God as the ground of being, I think the ground of being yeah that's broadly right that okay um, even just that god is the ground of being, so grinds basically you know basically can't be grasped but is fined in the embrace of justice love mercy so that's good god is the ground of being oh yeah you can put more that in can't here. be grasped that can't be grasped but um or that we can't speak but we always speak from maybe yeah ultimate concern ultimate concern that's another term for that yeah absolutely this yeah. is exactly that is the ground of being that we can i was going to say that we cannot uh well you could say that we cannot grasp but we are always grasped by yeah you could say it like that yeah 
and that's what ultimate concern is, yeah. Great, this is fun. And then, uh, then the, yep, post-structuralism, the reality is a void that calls, and you might change that term, but then the next box as well is the, um, we could, I, I would tend to call it radical theology. And remember, it, this does not necessarily cohere completely historically, because you know radical theology is also going on at the same time of uh, Paul Tillich, but yeah, radical theology, which you could call the void is the name of God, or the void names God, or yeah, the void is the name. Um, is the name of and is named by? Yeah, the void is the name of God, and is named God by God. Or I would just say even that just is the name of God. Again, all of these can be, you know, obviously changed a little bit, but just for the sake of this, as that that grasps everything I said very, very, very neatly, scarily neatly. Now it can be critiqued <laughs> whenever you can see it clearly. Does anybody else want to jump in? Sorry, I'm doing a lot of the talking here about about this diagram. Anybody got ideas what of what? Post-structuralism just actually just be, there's like a void in reality. And the next step is like the void calls or could be the name of God. Cause I feel like the critique to existentialism is that it's too grounded or like life is too contingent and chaotic. And so then there's a void. And then the next step would be like, but that void, there's something to the void. Would that be more correct? So say it again, start with existentialism for me. The existentialism is, is the ground of, being like God um, is like still beneath us in some way, but then I feel like a post-structuralist would say like, no, life is still still chaotic, and um, there's nothing beneath us. Yes. And then the radical theologians would be like, no, but that void still calls us, and we could call that void God. Yes, that's perfectly said. Yes, very good. Yes. The post-structuralism re reality has a void, and there is no ground of being. So it's negating existentialism's claim that there is a ground of being. Yeah. Now, the only thing I would definitely still, I think we've got to change the word existentialism only because someone like Jean-Paul Sartre is an existentialist and, and very much does not think God is a ground of being. Um, so I'm trying to think of a way just to, to say either, um, what, what were the terms we were using? Oh, neo-orthodoxy was, was uh, um, uh, sorry, I forget who said that, but yes, um, still catching up with all the names of everybody but yeah neo-orthodoxy is probably for now so when you say orthodoxy that implies that this is all coming from the christian tradition yeah, so that might... these, these arguments wouldn't necessarily work outside of the christian uh whatever, milieu. <laughs> yes, no, yeah, th this, is a, this is a type of dialectic that's going on within, specifically yeah, within the, the Christian tradition. Um, and yeah, you're right, like the dialectic will look different depending on which religion you're talking about. Um, so that this is very much a kind of, uh, the dialectic unfolding you see within Christianity. Um, and it, yeah, it wouldn't map well onto say Buddhism at all because Buddhism doesn't even start with a notion of God. So you're kind of, it would look very different. So then I guess maybe this is off topic. The, the point of these dialectics 
is to try to to grasp the nature of what's real what reality actually is or what's really going on well um, you, sorry go ahead oh yeah oh no i was just gonna say well you could say that the so basically hegel's the one who wants to kind of like almost show what's going on so before like it's almost like the way the way thought progresses is simply trying to overcome a contradiction in the moment. So there's there's always just whenever you're born in history, there's problems, and in philosophy, there's a problem. And all philosophy does is, in a sense, tries to overcome that problem. But by overcoming the problem, it goes to a negation, and then it overcomes that negation of negation. And so Hegel says, when you actually start to see the pattern of the movement itself, that's the kind of like. Um, that's the victory. So still things move on, but but where the real trick is, is that you see the process, like almost before, not, not completely, but before Hegel, we were less aware of the, the actual movement of thought. We were just concentrating on what's true, what's right. With Hegel, it's like, oh, every time we try to, Hegel says it like this, actually, he says, at every moment, we try to make certainty into truth. And what he means by that is we feel pretty certain about something, and then we just want to back it up and kind of prove it to be true. But every time we move from certainty to truth, we find out that what we were certain about isn't true. And so we move to a new certainty that we want to move towards truth. And it's that process. But do you want to come back on me on that? Does that make it clear or less clear? Well, um, I don't know if I want to expose, my <laughs> expose oh, no. myself. Um, uh, is there a way to talk about any of this without claiming the Christian tradition? Is there a way to say this is what's going on in the world? I mean, yeah. people these days are much more globally aware and globally conscious, and um, and then there there's a definite population of people who have a strong aversion to anything related to Christianity for various reasons. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what someone like Hegel would say, and then I'll let someone else jump in and also comment is that, that what is going on everywhere is dialectics. But yeah, but, but, but what you fill the boxes in with um, is different. So yeah, so Hegel's trying to, he is trying to kind of say something universal while also being true to particularism. So he's trying to be true to particularism, which says if you grew up Buddhist or if you grew up atheist, you got, you're going to have... A very different set of movements but then what he's trying to say and he may not be because i think you know john caputo would reject this in him anyway say he doesn't like this dialectics deleuze would probably reject this or would um is uh you know he would say but the universal is is the movement itself and that's where we're unified this is the weird thing about unification is where i'm unified with you is not that it's not in our beliefs but in our shared um uh contradiction in our shared movement of contradiction um, but isn't there a danger there peter that then like the i mean it, it kind of it becomes like an epistemology you no know? like the dialectical epistemology where you're understanding all events in this dialectical process rather than giving a possibility of understanding them in, in a way outside of dialectics yes very well said very very well said like I, if i hear you right it's like the, the danger is then we turn this into a type of dogmatics. And then, um, uh, and, 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 and Hegel did, he spoke against that. He actually said, he said, dialectics should not be seen as a method. 
keep but he basically said but like what you just simply do is think about your position as well as you can and he basically says that what you'll probably find is the dialectic movement but it's like almost it's almost like you can, you're you're not a you do evolution is a process it's a you know it's a yeah it's not as yeah if I'm hearing you correctly, you're you can't, as soon as you turn this into just oh everything's dialectics, you're gonna you're gonna mess up. What you kind well, like of, a concrete okay. a concrete example of that perhaps is desire, no? Like as in like I mean Lacan's understanding of desire in a dialectical fashion in regards to being sort of you know lack is the cause of desire, that kind of notion of negativity being the the sort of progenitor of desire. Hmm. Where whereas it seems Deleuze rejects that, and you say that like. No, we don't have to understand desire as being caused or being related to negativity. It can also be understood as being related to positivity. And actually the reason we understand it in relation to negativity is because of um, essentially it's a social construct that we understand it in relation to negativity rather than understanding it in relation to positivity or something else. Yeah. And this is, um, this is why we're going to have to do the Lacan Deleuze debates at some point, because uh, you're, you're, you're bringing up very important, very deep, um, issues here as to whether I, because I tend to think of desire as the concretization of lack, but um, you know I don't want to be dogmatic about that because there's very interesting critiques as you mentioned. Um, but instead of jumping too far into that, I just also want to ask anybody else to jump in. Uh, you know, we usually finish at about half the hour mark, but we might go 10 minutes over if you're enjoying this, but feel free to jump out. I'm loving this, by the way. This is really fun. And Abigail, that was an amazing diagram. Um, so yeah, anyone else want to jump in? Yeah, I've got a question, if that's all right. Abigail, if you could leave that diagram up just so that I can keep remembering it. I'm new to a lot of this stuff, but um, it's really nice to actually be able to ask you these questions now, Pete, because I've listened to your stuff for a long time, but I've always been obviously just listening to it. Um, so I get how the materialism uh, negates the apophatis. So I get how um, you've got this uh, this idea of God as a very mystical thing and, and the materialists saying it's not really relevant. And I get how non-orthodoxy counters that. Does not the materialism argument kind of come back when it comes to radical theology? Because if, if you're saying God is the, uh, the the void in the lack of the ground of being, is that not again quite irrelevant to the world well okay so that's a good question right because because the point of all of this as you can see is there it's a it's an attempt to kind of like each movement seems to carry with it what it left behind so if if that was the case then this would be a wrong move like it because it would be kind of going backwards now the I would argue, and the, the people who are talking about this, interestingly, are, you know, Slavio Žižek is probably the, the main kind of, kind of let's radical theologian today. He's not just a theologian, he's primarily actually a philosopher, but, um, but his work and Todd McGowan's work, he's another one who fits maybe in this, is very materialist. Because the idea is that, um, that it's precisely in embracing the lack that you are you know I symbolically identifying with Christ who experienced the lack and that this brings you to the point of what they call the community of the Holy Ghost the community of believers where God is not a substantial being that you love 
but God is the name for the link that is discovered in the act of love itself. So for someone like Shizek, this is the ultimate materialist move because um, it throws you into the world. It just, um, but yeah, but you come come back to me because yeah. So you do think there's a, what, what do you mean by a world negation here? You you see a type of world negation in this in this radical theology. Can you give me a bit more on that? I know it's just an intuition, but yeah. Well, I mean, I, I it may be that I'm misunderstanding the materialism argument, but um, I mean, if if I were to go along to a party, obviously not right now, but um, it, with with the kind of typical theism and say, hey. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Welcome into your life and everything will be great with you. Like, that's a very obvious thing. I'm talking about here is a thing. Here is how it impacts your life. Um, and and so it is it is very physical in the world. Um, so I don't see the materialist argument really applies there. It's, it's, just, it's the atheism argument that we've got there. Then... Um, uh apophaticism so so again if i'm at a party and i start saying oh yeah well there, there is a god we can't really describe it and god rid me of god and uh to say god is to say less than god and it it feels a bit wishy-washy to maybe some and and they can't then relate that to their lives mm-hmm. um god is the ground of being i mean i suppose with tillich and uh other writers around that time they were trying to relate it back to the real world um is it not possible that the radical theology stuff is starting to get a bit more mystical again i don't know yeah well okay here's where here's what i would say because you're right like looking at this very helpful diagram right we have um we have right materialism so materialism is the moment when Basically, you say what's important is material conditions. What's important, you know, the Marxist thing, the Freudian thing. It's like, how do we make material circumstances better? So there's materialism. Then the neo-Orthodox come along and say, yes. So they completely affirm that. But they say that, that when we affirm justice, emancipation, love, these kinds of, these kinds of things, we are, for Paul Tillich, affirming ultimate concern. We are, we are showing that we are grasped by concepts that are not material right you don't find justice in the world in and of itself you kind of you you do just acts but you're grasped by a justice you cannot speak you're grasped by a truth you cannot speak so there that's what the neo-orthodox are saying they're going like okay so all we want to do is give a ground to the materialism like a theological ground then the post-structuralists they go yep we're all very grounded but you don't have to have that substantive notion right the, in fact that substantive notion is problematic and then the radical theologians go, yeah, we're completely with the materialists. We're completely with the lack, but we just want to say that actually that notion is, is, is a theological notion. It's actually being part of the almost, I mean, almost in the terms of Feuerbach, the hidden truth of, of Christianity is that God is the kind of uh, the, 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 the social link between people who love. Mm. So, but so, so, in, so in a way, the radical theologians are trying to completely embrace materialism, but simply just articulate that uh, it's, yeah, that, that journey. Uh, I, I think I understand, because like, uh, I think what I was thinking was that each new box was a negation of the previous one. But I suppose if, if you just have a, an affirmation, then you negate it and then you negate it back. You're basically where you started, whereas 
the reason that we progress is that it's a, a partial affirmation and a partial negation. It says, actually, yeah, we're on board with some of what you're saying, but there's also something else. It's also like the, what you're saying is correct, but also in a theological sense. Yes. Oh, well, that, that last way you put it is good. And I'm, I'm promise I won't say too much. I, I'm so excited. I'm enjoying this and this conversation, but then I want to let other people speak. Um, the, this is the slight difference between whether the third box is a synthesis or a negation of negation, because a synthesis is kind of a way of almost going, okay, there's a bit of truth in both. The negation of negation is saying that by fully going into the negation, you get to a third place that, as you say, kind of grasps something of both. And the reason why I'm more this notion of negation of negation is it's the idea that you're not trying to synthesize the two boxes, find like a middle, a middle ground. And this is well put with Abigail. She hasn't put the box in the middle of the two, right? You keep them, you see the movement going to the side. Is that it's like that when you go into the darkness, you find the light. When you go into death, fully into death, you find life. When you go fully into dissatisfaction, you can find satisfaction. So it that's the dialectic. It's weirdly that that it's it's an attempt to go as fully into the negation as possible and when you do you find an affirmation in it does that make sense yeah now, i have to show the working out so that's just the kind of logical path yeah no that's really helpful yeah thanks for that thank you and yeah and you can speak away well but i'm gonna i'll try and shut up for a second or two anybody else want to jump in <laughs> yeah go on greg yeah, I was just going to say that um, for me, I was thinking about like kind of outside of a religious perspective, I was thinking about it in terms of like capitalism and Marxism in a way. So I think it was interesting that you were talking earlier, Pete, about how um, a lot of times the negation will still take the form of the thing that it's you know, negating to a, to a certain extent. Um, I was thinking about how one of Todd McGowan's big critiques of Marxism is that it, it's actually still too capitalist in its foundation and the idea that it just imagines production without the constraint of capital um so in a way i was thinking about that kind of how even it's almost like the idea of there is no meta language so where we can critique from outside of language sorry um and i guess, I guess the idea is that kind of you've got marxism as a negation you know then the negation of that negation is i don't know remain to be seen i guess i don't know i just was yeah. throwing that thought out there no that's very good thank you that's very good because so mcgowan's critique for everybody else as well of 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 Marxism, as someone he, he, you know, agrees with Marx's critique of capitalism, is that it sometimes looks too far ahead. And when it looks too far ahead at what the next stage is, it's always just an idealized version of the current stage. Uh, this is Zizek's critique of Stalinism, right? Of course, there's lots of critiques of Stalinism, but the, the kind of what's the theoretical issue? And both Shizek and McGowan agree that the theoretical issue is that Stalin put himself outside of history and saw where the end of history was. And when you can see where it's going, justifies anything. Right? You are the you are the the vessel of, of fate and history. But that within this movement, the idea is that you simply go as far into the position that currently exists and it gives way to a contradiction and it gives way to something new and you prevent yourself from thinking i know what the next stage is you just as i think you're saying greg you kind of just enter into the historical moment raise up the contradictions that exist within it and the next thing will happen 
which I think, by the way, is also in Marx. I mean, literally, Marx at his best is just trying to find a central contradiction in capitalism. Like that's that's him at his best is just trying to go, what is the central contradiction? And if we can expose it, something else will arise. What is the contradiction to uh, radical theology, according to the diagram? I would see if I said, then I would be guilty of that very problem. That's a great thing to say. It's like, so if, if you ever hear me give you the answer to that, then you can definitely unsubscribe to Patreon because I've, I've lost my way. <laughs> but it's a great question because that is in, that's in a way a great example of how we have to stop ourselves from, and I have to stop myself from thinking what's the next um, partly, I just think that we're not, we're, we're just at the beginning of radical theology. We're just at the beginning of, 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 of bringing that to the surface and of playing with it. And, and actually, it might be 500 years before the, the contradictions within that really arise um, in a strong way. Um, however, there is one thing maybe I would say is that at least you know it's always going to be a deeper contradiction. Right. So every time you so we have contradictions today in, in capitalist society, which lead to people being unhappy in their work, underemployed, uh, no financial security, instability, all these problems. Let's imagine that we overcome those. We could say the next stage is going to be a deeper contradiction. And that might be something like, well, now we're happier in our work and we realize we're going to die. <laughs> and, uh, and at the moment, we can't even think too much about it. In fact, death sometimes is a good thing for us because we're like, oh, we hate life so much. What happens if life is better? Then death becomes maybe the contradiction. So all we know is it's probably going to be a deeper contradiction. But, uh, but yeah, but we, if, if what I've articulated here is where we are in history, then, then our job is in a sense to, to mine this. Um, and be careful of say this is why this is my critique of progressivism always be my critique of progressivism is I feel progressivism always th thinks it knows the next stage it's not apocalypticism it, it always knows and and that I think that's you know Stalin's the worst form of that but I think you know that's the danger is when you know where the future is you can write people off you can justify anything well, we only have room on the page for one more negation and one more synthesis. So I think that's the end of history. Yes, amen to that. Um, please send me that, that, that diagram. If you wanted to put in more of those dotted lines, you could do the dotted lines between the, uh, the white boxes and the dotted lines between the colored boxes. If you want, I, I think that might add to it. I'm not sure. At least it shows the connection between the two. And then I can... Um, I'll, I'll, when I'm editing this Coffee and Concepts, I'll have that on the screen for us. And then did you say that there was a connection between materialism and radical theology? Like, should we add some sort of line there as well? Well, only then you'd, then you'd need to add lines to... Everything. everything. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so no, no dotted line, because they're all sort of connected to the ones before them. Yes, yes, yes. They're all trying to kind of like, uh, in the words of Spiral Dynamics, what it is to kind of transcend and include. I don't overly like that language, but actually it's probably quite good language because each of these movements is, is, is bringing something with it. And also, by the way, then means that there can be reversals and there's always reversals. So in, in our moment in time, we can obviously identify, uh, oh, sorry. We can obviously identify 
kind of maybe the first form of atheism and new atheism, the first form of theism and maybe evangelicalism. So all of this you can identify in history in its present moment as well as through history. So well, can I, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was just gonna ask if this is a diagram of almost like the history of theology throughout time, mm. um, the danger with trying to make it too much of a personal journey is that it almost becomes a goal rather than um, a journey and it becomes, oh, I'm only at this level, I need to get down to this level and how do I progress to there? Um, presumably, I, I don't even know how to ask the question really, other than like, how do you explore it without feeling that pressure to kind of get to the next stage for yourself? Yes, that's, yeah, that's very good. I mean, one thing, by the way, about this diagram is in some respects, and I say this carefully, you know, it's an historical diagram with the idea that all the moments can be found at any time, but, but we're definitely at a stage where all, all of these things are going on. So I look at this more as going, where, where are we as a theologically today? And this is where we're at, kind of, we're at this point where all of these are all going on within us. Um, yeah, whether this can be applied to our individual lives, that's interesting. Um, somebody might have a comment on that uh, that's more thoughtful than mine. Um, uh, only I wanted to add, Peter, was just to say that, I mean, what um, Kate was referring to seemed, I mean, it seems to imply this progress, right? Yeah. Um, which I mean, obviously, if like you jump in from a Fouc like a Foucault's perspective or something, is that can we really say that this is progress? And how do we actually say that this is progress, even whether it's progress, like in terms of our knowledge or understanding or not? You know, I mean, because you know that that's open to debate itself, right? And we're implying in this structure that there's progress. Yes, is there progress? I think that these are such good questions. Absolutely very important. Because um, in, in Hegel, there is a type of progress and yet he rejects progress because like, so the way McGowan says it is he says, it's almost not prog, there is movement. There's obvious movement. Like, okay, ask it like this, is evolution progress rhetorically? Kind of go like, well, of course, in one way, evolution seems to progress but it also has all these dead ends. There's no teleological dimension to it. It's simply the contradiction working itself out within a given environment. So yeah, uh, on change to change, what do you think about, like, what, would you say evolution is progress or not? Uh, how, what, how would you term that? Because that, I think that's going to be similar. Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, like, we, I mean, we end up, I mean, we end up because of the, I mean, because of the language, I guess, that we have, or because, I mean, people i mean i guess foucault would probably go as far as saying that it's in, in part it's it's because of capitalist ideology you could say that we read progress into this process you know that it doesn't necessarily have to be understood in that way um but we we have to think that we're always progressing as a it, it that's how we've kind of defined evolution i mean all of it's caught up in sort of yeah the history of uh, the history of ideology in terms of how it's how it's how we're thinking about these things right and so we're, we're inevitably thinking of this as, as a as a process of progress rather than something else because we don't want to think that we're like we haven't come anywhere as a society perhaps you know um that that's necessary that we're, we're always thinking in terms of growth and but i mean in terms of responding to your question in terms of evolution i, I yeah i mean I, I i i'd personally probably say that no i think 
probably the opposite is true, you know, then, then that becomes something like sort of, um, yeah, I mean, saying that we, I mean, I mean, even, even that, some of that's in, 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 in Marx, arguably, you know, that, you know, proto-communism, if you look back on historically, we were kind of better off before way back, you know, so all of this is just kind of a failed progress anyway. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like, I, I almost think of like evolution gives the um, appearance of progress or progress becomes, I almost want to say an epiphenomenon in the sense of all evolution is, is a contradiction in the present, but the contradiction in the present, you know, generates results. And that is similar to Hegel, who says, all you have is what's going on in the moment and it's, and it's contradictions. And he wants to say, that's why he says the oil of Minerva spreads her wings at dusk. That's his way of saying only when things are finished, can you kind of look back and kind of like make sense of progress. And Kierkegaard says the same, life is lived forwards and understood backwards. Like meaning is a retroactively created uh, phenomenon, but that in the moment, we should never think of progress. Almost progress is always what we see at the end of time, at the end of every epoch. For someone like I think Marx and Kierkegaard, or sorry, Hegel and Kierkegaard, it's like progress is the name we give to the map we put on what's already happened. And it's never referred to what's going on in the future. I think that's what one way of thinking about it. But that's the problem with even the wording of how we talk about this, like by saying, you know, you take theism and then you take atheism and then you go into atheism and you find something that takes the best of both and it kind of puts them together. It makes it sound like you've found something that's better, yes. that's more accurate, that's more complete, that is um, a, somehow a better understanding. So as you go to the, through the movement, you're finding be something better, something that is, um, yes, a deeper contradiction because you're going further into it and somehow that is an improvement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and Marx, I forget, there's a really interesting line Marx uses about um, evolution, but I, uh, I forget what it is off the top of my head, but I think that the same issue is with evolution itself. Like we do talk about uh, organisms and we can like look at how they changed and developed and we can watch our nature programs and we can see progress. But that is only a retroactive effect. At the time, there was no kind of like nothing was written into that organism to define that path. So I think that's for me, that's a good way of trying to protect from exactly Kate, what you're talking about is to try to remember it like, like evolution, which is retroactively, we can map things. But but we have to remember that like that organism was not predestined to become that thing. It simply was undergoing contradictions in the present. Do you think that kind of saves us from the concern that you have? Well, I suppose the bigger concern with me is that I like rules, I like goals, I, I like knowing what I'm supposed to be doing so I can make the teacher happy. <laughs> and so if I'm given a diagram like this, my instant thought is, okay, so I'm currently at this point, I need to get down to radical theology. So what stages do I need to work my way through? Who do I need to read and understand in order to get to the point I'm meant to get to? Um, which clearly is completely defeating the object. Um, and so I suppose it's even in um, like the discussion with uh, John Caputo, it was like, okay, I'm really agreeing with Tillich's ground of being, you're talking about Derrida, 
Derrida having a groundless grounded being, how do you make that leap? And it's like, well, who says you have to? Like, yeah. you could quite happily live the rest of your life not doing that, and that would be fine. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. One of the things that's that's potentially even worse, which is the first thing going through my mind um, when when you know, we, we started talking about this this progression as if it were a progress. Um, so I, I run a youth group um, with a group of you know 15, 16, 17 year old theists, and the first thing that's going through my mind is, well, how can I get all of these people from this theism box to this radical theology box, which is potentially even worse because, you know, what I'm doing there is is threatening people's faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, man, by the way, that's cool. The work you're doing, you bring me back because I used to do similar work that you're doing and I miss it desperately. So you're making me feel jealous now. Um, you know, but you're absolutely right is that once we start to think of ourselves less as a mirror that allows those young people or the adults who ever we're working with to have a to, to cultivate curiosity with themselves and a conversation with dimensions of themselves that they are not necessarily aware of right that's what i think is good when we the bad is when we think yes we have to bring people to a certain point what i think you are in a sense is this midwife or this this mirror that is simply there to say are there so for example, if they're mostly quite concerned, quite in the theistic box, the truth is they're not, right? The truth is, of course, because they live in a society with lots of questions, for most of them, there are repressed questions, as you obviously know, there's lots of things that they have, but they may feel that they're not allowed to ask those questions. They have to keep those questions closed. And if you're able to help them cultivate a curiosity with those questions, the movement will happen and you don't have to define where the movement is. In fact, you can yeah, try to be as kind of a, a bracket that, that out as much as possible and just go, I don't know where this movement's going to go. I have to, every time I do atheism for Lent, I have to try to do this. And it's hard after running it for 30 years. I have to say, I don't know where this is going to go for people. I just want to cultivate a curiosity within the people that I'm working with to help them bring up their own questions and concerns. And then the dialectic will just work. It'll just go. You're almost there to get the dialectic going. But how does that sound to you? Yeah, that sounds great. And to be honest, that is kind of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, when we first started, it was more a, a case of, hey, let's try finding what the orthodox view on a lot of these things I mean even when I was at my most evangelistic I was never a particularly good evangelist because it was always like oh yes you should read the bible although it's not infallible uh it's kind of take it with a pinch of salt kind of thing so I was never a very good evangelist and the youth group was always a bit um loose on the evangelism thing but um yeah I, I yeah I think that's a very good point that that those the the things in the atheism box there though those questions that every young christian has they will exist and it's just a case of allowing a space for those questions to come out yeah absolutely and you'll notice in my books by the way like and it, and it wasn't i never you know i can pretend that i had this all planned out but i didn't but my first book was very much based on you could put it the atheism in the apophatic, the apophatic box is I was basically saying to people, doubt, ambiguity, and complexity are not things to be frightened of. 
And what and, and within evangelical church where that book was more read, not widely read, but more read, it was one of a small part of a larger movement where within some parts of evangelicalism, doubt, ambiguity, and complexity were embraced. And so the apophatic tradition kind of came in. And so what I find is, and then my later books, post the Orthodox heretic, are more in the radical theology. Neo-Orthodox probably is like maybe fidelity of betrayal and then into kind of a radical orthodoxy. But it just felt like that was the natural movement of me and my audience. And it, but it felt about trying to kind of I say make it into the progress. It was, that was just me trying to work with the group that I was in. Um, but and then letting the dialectic process start to work. Yeah. Uh, just to add, add Peter, I was, I was just going to say because this, I mean, this seems to resonate, and particularly Kate's question with a lot of like pop, you know, Karl Popper's view of Hegel. Um, a little, yes, yes, he was not a. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, more, more just reading him as a totalitarian in a sense, um, mm -hmm. or at least, I mean, I mean, arguably he isn't. I mean, it, it definitely. I mean, and definitely like Zizek did a lot to rescue that view of Hegel as being much more radical than um, we, we take him for in general. But like the problem is that the popular, you know, our, our popular sort of um, our episteme, I suppose you could say, leads, tends us towards understanding Hegel or these kinds of authors in this sort of linearized way. And so it's very easy for us to interpret. It's very easy for us to lead ourselves to sort of understanding dialectics in this simplified sense and then it becomes actually a very dangerous philosophy. Yes, yes, very good. You, you know, and you're, you might as, be- as you, as you pointed out with regards to Stalin. Yes, yeah, no, and you may be one of the voices that, you know, continues to remind us of that because that might be the temptation that someone like me would fall into. So I appreciate, the, you know, that, that's definitely something that is very important to keep in mind. And by the way, my goodness, we've gone way over today. Um, I hope you've uh, enjoyed that as much as I have. Um, we should probably finish up, but thank you so much. Um, I will edit this and put in Abigail's uh, 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 diagram, um, if you can send that to me. And um, yeah, that was really fun. Thank you so much. And, and this is a good introduction to atheism for Lent, if you serve, for those of you who are gonna be doing it. Um, and then uh, we're taking a kind of a month off uh, coffee and concepts for that and then we'll be back after the ideas of Berlin's gone. So thanks everybody, have a great day and uh, see you all soon.